The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, March 31st. I'm Terry Arango with my guest, Dr. Thea Harris, Thea Harides. Dr. Thea Harides is a professor of pharmacology, internal medicine, and biochemistry, and the director of the Laboratory of Molecular Immunopharmacology and Drug Discovery, Department of Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics, Tufts University School of Medicine. He trained in allergy and clinical immunology at Yale and internal medicine at New England Medical Center. Dr. Thea Harides was director of medical pharmacology at Tufts. He has 300 publications and three books, including a textbook of pharmacology. Dr. Thea Harides was the first to show mast cells and acute stress promote inflammation in autism, cancer, interstitial cystitis, migraines, and multiple sclerosis. Dr. Thea Harides, thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to be with you, Terry. Well, I think that we need to start with some fundamental questions. Can you first please explain the concepts of neuroimmune, autoimmunity, and the enteric nervous system to our listeners? Uh, Surely. Unfortunately, many such terms are used interchangeably, even though they might not mean exactly the same thing. Let me start with autoimmunity. In general, we consider autoimmunity if our body, the immune system that is uh, geared to protect our body, for some mostly unknown reasons, start attacking our own tissues. Therefore, autoimmunity, the immune system attacks ourselves. Now, to the extent that that problem involves nervous system, like the brain, for instance, then we call it neuroimmune. And lastly, the enteric nervous system is literally a small brain within our intestines because the intestinal system has what we call a plexus, meaning uh, a group of nerves that surround the intestine that allow many of the functions of the intestine to take place without necessarily voluntary control from the brain. And that enteric nervous system could also be involved in inflammation, whether we would call it autoimmune for the enteric system or neuroimmune because we have a nervous system within the gut, so to speak. But there's no question that the gut and the brain communicate in many ways, and I think we will get into this a little later. All right, and we hear about inflammation a lot. What is the relationship of inflammation to immunity? Uh, That's actually quite confusing, even within medical uh, uh, establishments, because immunity, whether we call it innate, that we've had it all along, or acquired because you've been exposed to some microorganism or we've gotten a vaccine, is supposed to be protective to the body. 
even though we already said that in certain cases it becomes destructive. Now, inflammation, most of the time, is the response of the body immediately to a real or perceived danger. So if we have um, a thorn in our finger, we're going to get pus. That's inflammation. If we get an infection in our lungs, we'll immediately try to attack that. That's inflammation. But many times, unfortunately, inflammation becomes dysregulated, but we don't have a term for that yet. Uh, I would call that, if you wish, auto-inflammation, like we say autoimmunity, and in fact, this autoinflammation might be more prevalent in some of the diseases uh, that I've been interested in, including autism, and I think I will try to make that a little more succinct later. I like your term, autoinflammation. Thank you. Is there any evidence for immune dysfunction in autism? There is. In fact, there has been uh, more and more such evidence over the last a few years, and I'll give you at least certain pieces that were published not by us, but many other distinguished uh, uh, colleagues. Number one, they have shown that many, up to sometimes 40% of patients with autism, have in their blood circulating antibodies against brain proteins. To make this simpler, Our brain is protected by what we call the blood-brain barrier that doesn't allow anything literally to get in except for sugar so that the brain can uh, feed and sustain itself. So to the extent that patients with autism have antibodies against their brain, that means that this blood-brain barrier was disrupted or breached at some point in the child's development to allow the body to make antibodies against the brain. And the question is, why should it make antibodies against the brain since the brain is part of ourselves? It's because the blood-brain barrier is so protective that the immune system, the inflammatory system, never really see the brain. Once they see it, they think it's foreign because they're not supposed to be going in there, and then they start basically creating an autoimmune or autoinflammatory response. In addition, a number of studies have shown that circulating immune cells in patients or in many patients with autism overreact to various stimuli. Sometimes the stimuli were infectious, like a microorganism. Sometimes were actually environmental. So to the extent that there is more response or dysregulated response of at least part of the immune system means that something is actually not going properly uh, for whatever reason, at least in a good number of patients with autism. That sounds like neuroimmunity since the body is attacking its own brain tissue or uh, producing antibodies against brain tissue. That is absolutely right. Now, is this uh, a one-time event or is it an ongoing process or does it vary in different patients? That's an excellent question, uh, and we can break it down to a number of segments. Firstly, starting from the end, uh, I have no doubt from everything I've read or done that there is heterogeneity within patients with autism, and of course the patients and their families know that better than any of us, not necessarily in just the description, whether it is Asperger's or autism syndrome, etc., but also in the way they present in other diseases or syndromes or conditions that might be present at the same time. We call those co morbid conditions. I will return to that later because a number of such patients, for instance, have symptoms that are reminiscent of allergy 
an allergy in many ways, it's an inflammatory uh, response. So I think that, number one, there is heterogeneity. Number two, it must have been an ongoing process to at least some extent early in life. Uh, these events are not instantaneous. For instance, the blood-brain barrier may open and close at various times, but those immune cells that are allowed to get into the brain need time to create an inflammatory or an autoimmune response that will last. So either we're talking about some time while uh, the baby is growing, meaning during gestation, or some time when the infant is born, and obviously no one knows whether there is genetic predisposition, environmental exposure, or other uh, problems that we might touch upon later. You know, on, on a fundamental level, is inflammation a disease process? You might need to rephrase that if I were actually to do justice uh, to answering the question, um, in the sense that uh, whenever we have uh, disease that involves at least infectious components uh, or toxic components from the outside, inflammation at the very early on, it is protective, or at least it's supposed to be protective. But in many instances, it becomes dysregulated. Uh, for instance, there is dysregulated response in the brain against a fragment of what basically covers the brain cells, the neurons, and that leads to multiple sclerosis. Uh, there is inflammation in the membranes that cover the brain, they are called meninges, and that is associated with migraines. There is inflammation associated with the skin in psoriasis. And the reason I'm mentioning these three conditions or diseases is because all three worsen by both emotional as well as physical stress, and I think that to some extent uh, such stress may be at play also in autism, and hopefully we will discuss this again a little later. Okay. Uh, well, you were using the word disease previously, mm -hmm. and so um, I wonder, do you, how do you feel about when autism is used as a purely uh, psychological or psychiatric term? Well, I, and I think a number of my colleagues um, would very strongly feel that there's no distinction between psychology and, and neurology or between physical and emotional disease. Um, I, I think that, not I think, I believe very strongly that the makeup of the body is such uh, that basically to a large extent uh, could uh, explain processes that sometimes we call psychological, sometimes uh, we call them physical. And the reason why I feel very strongly that there is a continuum is because stress was a black box until quite recently in the sense that we just don't know what stress is. However, uh, some colleagues and then uh, recently ourselves showed that one hormone that is released immediately, the first hormone released immediately after stress, whether it's emotional, whether it's oxidative stress that we can talk about a bit later because that is prevalent in many patients with autism, releases this hormone, which is called corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH, and we were the first to show that this hormone, even though it's considered to be released only inside the brain, it's released outside the brain in other tissues, including the intestine, where it stimulates 
these cells of the immune system that we will talk shortly about called the MAST cells or M-A-S-T cells and those then release a lot of molecules that lead to neuroinflammation. So from that point of view, the psychological part of stress, now it's real because we can measure hormone and it's even more real because we can measure what the hormone does on certain cells of the immune system. Uh, the question is, can we actually link this to some of the diseases uh, I mentioned? And, of course, can we link it to autism? Okay. And we will pick up with this when we come back on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Hi, we're back with Dr. Thea Harris, Thea Harides, and before the break, uh, we were talking about corticotropin releasing hormone and stress and how that manifests in the body. We began to talk about mast cells, and I think we need to backtrack a little bit uh, before we get to that. We were talking about inflammation and the immune system. Dr. Theoharides, is there any evidence of inflammation 
in autism, you know, documented in the scientific literature, especially in the brain and the intestines? Uh, absolutely, yes. This is very recent information, and it is different than the presence of the antibodies against brain proteins that we discussed a little earlier. Um, when inflammation occurs, a number of small molecules are released from the inflammatory cells, and those are often called cytokines. Two of the most important cytokines are called interleukin-6 or IL-6 and tumor necrosis factor or TNF. A number of papers have shown over the last couple of years that these molecules are high in the cerebrospinal fluid in many patients with autism. This is the fluid basically that bathes the brain and it is the best reflection of what is happening in the brain, unlike measuring something in the blood, where if it is high, it will have to be very high to eventually make it from the blood through the cerebrospinal fluid eventually uh, in the periphery. In addition, studies that were just published, in fact this month, where they looked at the presence of such molecules in brains of patients who unfortunately died who had autism, they also showed that more than a third of such patients had high levels of expression of these proteins. And when we say expression, we mean that the protein is high in the tissue, but not necessarily that it has been released in the cerebrospinal fluid. With uh, dead tissue or fixed tissue uh, or post-mortem tissue, it's impossible to measure something in the fluid. Uh, it's much easier to measure the expression. Similar studies um, had been done in the intestines, but there the situation was a little different. A number of papers um, three, four years ago had been published indicating that the collection of immune cells in those relay stations that we call lymph nodes around the intestine were actually more. In other words, the lymph nodes were enlarged. Then those papers become, uh, became a little bit controversial uh, because some of the co-authors of the papers didn't feel maybe that the results were justified. Nevertheless, a paper uh, was published recently by an independent group also showing that at least in some patients with autism, there is what they call regional lymphadenopathy. In other words, in certain parts of the intestine, there might be increased lymph nodes. However, when they look for specific disease, such as, for instance, inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel disease, they couldn't quite see any. So that information uh, is a little more lacking than the ones that has been published in the brain recently. These cytokines or these chemical messengers, um, you had been talking about a sort of brain in the gut, the nexus, mm -hmm. and we're talking about the actual brain tissue as well. Is there some sort of a correlation of the cytokines that are found in the gut and the brain and the cerebral spinal fluid of individuals with autism? Uh, separate papers, but not in autism, have shown that when IL-6 or TNF is high in the brain, there's no question that there is inflammation in the brain, and when they're high in the intestine, there is inflammation in the intestine. For instance, in inflammatory bowel disease, and as the term indicates, it's inflammation of the intestines, these cytokines are elevated. Also, 
in a disease that involves the joints like rheumatoid arthritis, IL-6 and tumor necrosis factors are elevated not only in the joints, but also in the blood. And in fact, one of the better treatments for severe rheumatoid arthritis these days is use of drugs or chemicals that neutralize, that block the action of TNF or tumor necrosis factor. But no publication, to my knowledge, has shown that in any patients with autism, but that might be the case because no one looked at it. I think you're the first to possibly ask the question. We clearly have been interested in it, has tried to see if these are elevated in cerebrospinal fluid and or in the blood and or uh, in the intestine. And one of the difficulties for doing this is, first of all, cerebrospinal fluid is not sampled routinely from autism patients. That's what we call a spinal tap. And intestines are not routinely biopsied in these patients because you don't know what to biopsy. And obviously, you're going to biopsy the brain. Therefore, you're left with the blood. And we are in the process, actually, of doing some such studies. But we would be very happy if we see happy in the good sense because we will have a target to follow. Uh, if we can actually see this elevated in uh, patients with autism, because then we might be able to use this as target. But as I said earlier, if they are high in the blood, that means that they're very high because one would expect them first to be high in the cerebrospinal fluid and then eventually become high in the blood. I can tell you, even though it's not been published yet, that our preliminary data that we're analyzing actually this week from 25 children with autism less than five years old compared to much controls already show high IL-6 levels, but as I said, this is preliminary. We haven't published it yet. So let's tie this into mast cells. What are mast cells? Um, are they part of the immune system? Are they all throughout the body? Right. This, these cells are really fascinating. They were discovered in 1887 by the German physician, uh, Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who basically identified them because they stain very nicely. Uh, if you can imagine, they're like a soccer ball filled with about 500 ping-pong balls, each ping-pong ball having about uh, 20 marbles uh, in it. And then when this cell is stimulated, and the typical stimulation would be in an allergic reaction, let's say you're allergic to uh, wasps and you get stung by a wasp, then these cells would almost explode like a hand grenade, but they will not die and they release all the little marbles from the ping-pong balls. They're called secretory granules, and there are about 500 of them. And then during this explosive reaction, another 50 molecules will be released. So you have an amazing microcosm of pharmacology circulating all over the body, and we don't understand why God, nature, would put a cell with so many, so powerful molecules all over the body, including the brain, and what is amazing is the brain doesn't get allergic reactions. So the question is, why are the cells there? We were the first to show that unlike this explosive reaction that occurs in allergic reactions, which might be the tip of the iceberg, these cells can be stimulated unlike by the typical antigen, meaning the wasp venom, or penicillin if you're allergic to penicillin. They can be stimulated by microorganisms such as viruses, by toxins uh, such as circulating uh, environmental toxins, by neuropeptides, and most recently 
by that stress hormone that I mentioned, uh, CRH. Therefore, the cells are positioned everywhere in the body, including the brain, including the intestine, and in very critical areas where they control the entry inside the body. So the intestine, they control the entry from the gut into the blood. In the brain, they control the entry from the blood into the brain. And one of the most potent molecules that they release is, in fact, interleukin-6 or IL-6. All right, so it sounds then as if mast cells have a role in inflammation. Absolutely, yes. Uh, we have been saying this and publishing on it for almost 10 years, and now it's been about two years that the field has been flooded by publications by very well-regarded scientists saying exactly what we've been saying, that the mast cell is very important in inflammation. In fact, in many courses in pathology now, uh, we teach that inflammation cannot start without the mast cell getting the process going. And as we discussed earlier, the question becomes, why is the mast cell dysregulated so that it allows the inflammation to become destructive rather than protective? So let's look at things like uh, food components, gliadin or metals, um, aluminum, mercury, stress. You were mentioning corticotropin-releasing hormone. Right. Uh, can these all affect mast cells, allergic reactions, inflammation? Actually, they do, but they do to different extents, and they stimulate the release of different molecules, uh, which is also quite amazing. In other words, corticotropin-releasing hormone, the first stress hormone, induces the mast cell to release only one molecule called vascular endothelial growth factor, which is also very vasodilatory, and it can disrupt the protective barrier both in the intestine and in the blood. One molecule that is released in inflammation called interleukin-1 makes the mast cell release only interleukin-6. Other colleagues have shown that viruses that stimulate the mast cell, they make it release only interleukin-6. And we recently showed, uh, and we have a presentation at the annual meeting of the American uh, Association of Immunologists next month, that fairly small amounts of mercury can also stimulate the mast cells to release only vascular endothelial growth factor selectively. And I... Oh, okay. We can pick it up was, that it was just fine. <laughs> after the break, and we'll be right back. Thank okay. you our sponsor, Enzymedica. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the 
the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And VirusStop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Dr. Saharides, before the break, you were making a point about vascular endothelial growth factor. You were talking about a meeting that you and your colleagues were going to and a relationship with Mercury. Would you like to uh, continue that point? Uh, Yes. Uh, We were intrigued uh, by all the um, sporadic, if it may be, uh, evidence that there might be some association between uh, Mercury in uh, vaccines and autism. And uh, I'm aware of the fact, of course, that autism has uh, continued to increase, especially in California after mercury had been removed from vaccines. But I don't want to stay with just mercury in vaccines because, uh, as you know, there is actually a recommendation um, by our government that pregnant women actually don't eat um, as much um, fish, especially tuna fish, as, as we used to because of the fear that there might be actually mercury, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm talking about mercury in general as a contaminant, not necessarily uh, in vaccines. And uh, because of the mast cell potential connection, uh, and because mast cells respond to so many other triggers, we wanted to find out if they respond to mercury and what do they respond <clears throat> like. So we basically stimulated the human cultured mast cells. These are normal mast cells in the laboratory with mercury. And first we looked to see if they would degranulate like they do in an allergic reaction, and they did not. Um, So clearly that wasn't a typical allergic response. Then we looked to see if they release selectively, meaning without this degranulation, and we found out that they release vascular endothelial growth factor selectively. The concentration or the amount of mercury required for this response uh, was about 10 to 100 times more than what I have found in vaccines. 
Uh, and of course, you don't know in terms of pollution because you don't know what the patients might be exposed to. But the reason I'm saying this is because two recent papers within the last six months indicated that in toxicologic studies of patients with autism, and by toxicology, you can either take the hair and measure what metals the individual has been exposed to by how much there is in hair because it accumulates, or in some chemicals called porphyrins that the body releases in response to elevated amount of certain metals. So two papers independently indicated that the number of patients with autism had been exposed to mercury by virtue of the fact of either that it was accumulating in hair or that he had induced release of these porphyrins in the urine. So from that, we were intrigued. And the fact that we use amounts that are 10 to 100 times more than might have been reported is really not that critical because the human mast cells we use are cultured. And cultured mast cells never respond as any other cultured cell the same way that a cell in the body would respond. In other words, the mast cells in the intestine are likely to respond very differently to environmental toxins um, than, than a cultured cell that is very undifferentiated. How does oxidative stress fit into all of this? Well, oxidative stress is fascinating because oxidative stress, by definition, means that the body responds to, again, some insult, either innate or outside, by releasing what we call oxygen radicals, and therefore we call it oxidative stress. Oxidative stress, in some ways, acts like corticotropin releasing hormone in the brain, except that oxidative stress occurs in all the tissues of the body. So it's the immediate response of the body saying something is going on here, I've got to take care of it very quickly. And there has been a number of papers, very convincing in my mind papers, showing that the ability of the body in autistic patients to eventually calm down this oxidative stress is actually somewhat defective. And the reason that is the case that I'm convinced is because there are certain proteins that we have in our body, uh, such as glutathione, such as S-adenosimethionine, that basically soak up all these superoxygen uh, species so eventually it doesn't become dysregulated. And these proteins have been found many times and again to be somewhat to very much lower in many patients with autism. How does this tie to the mast cells? Well, any kind of oxidative stress, these oxygen radicals also stimulate the mast cells. A number of colleagues have shown that actually, uh, uh, you know, in the last you know, few years, and we have shown the same thing recently. In fact, we found something that is, in my mind, absolutely fascinating because we showed that a particular protein called UCP2 that regulates oxidative stress is actually dysfunctional in mast cells from patients that have problems with mast cells. We haven't done this in autism yet. In fact, I would be very interested in seeing if immune cells circulating blood cells from autistic patients show the same dysregulation that we are seeing in patients that have otherwise uh, problems with mast cells. I think this would be a, a good point in the program to kind of summarize and diagram what we've been talking about here. The 
interrelationship between mast cells, the blood-brain barrier, the gut? What's the possible sequence of events whereby the blood-brain barrier is impaired, the gut is too permeable, mast cells are affected, allergic reactions and inflammation and oxidative stress are occurring? All right. Um, if I would put it into a plausible scenario, I would say that at some point, either just before a baby is born or early after a baby is born, either because of some, sometimes we call it subclinical infection. Now, it's an infection that doesn't really is full-blown, but still is ongoing, activates the mast cells uh, in the intestine. They open up the intestinal barrier, and they allow then molecules that might be toxic, environmental or otherwise, uh, to enter the blood. And during that time, the activation of the muscles in the brain allows the blood-brain barrier to open up so that these toxins now get into the brain and they induce inflammation in the brain with increase of molecules such as the cytokines, IL-6, uh, TNF. At the same time, any additional stressor, and there could be, for instance, high temperature is a stressor, uh, allergies a stressor, uh, psychological stress, and the babies are very sensitive to psychological stress even while they're in the uterus, would release corticotropin-releasing hormone, which will further stimulate the mast cells and get a cyclic reaction uh, going. And lastly, there is some wonderful, wonderful in the sense that it is intriguing evidence from two papers at least that were published just uh, last year indicating that stress around the delivery, especially in babies that are premature, is associated with up to four times higher risk of developing autism. And two colleagues in England and we have shown that corticotropin-releasing hormone is very high in the blood of mothers during premature uh, gestation and delivery. So there could be also CRH released, not necessarily from the actual patient or infant that has autism, but from the mother due to all kinds of different stressors that contributes to this problem. You've been mentioning uh, stress and uh, corticotropin-releasing hormone a lot. Are you finding or are you reading in the literature that individuals with autism have a higher degree of anxiety? Is that the kind of stress you're talking about? Excellent question. Uh, even though this kind of stress would be more the psychological stress, and earlier on I tried to make clear that I'm not distinguishing between psychological and physical stress, but there have been three papers that at least I'm aware of showing that this is the case. Um, number one, they showed that the indicators of stress, biochemical molecules that we can measure in the blood, are actually higher in a good number of Asperger's patients. Number two, when patients, not just Asperger's only, are exposed to a stressor, they cannot cope with the stressor as well as other individuals, and either they shut down or they go into uh, the well-known sort of stereotypic repetitive uh, kind of you know, behaviors. And lastly, it was shown in animals, and we might uh, get to this if we have time uh, later uh, with respect to our own work, that such stress, especially during infancy, and such stress both other colleagues and we mimic by allowing an animal to be confound into an immobilizer for 
from 30 minutes up to a few hours, that creates what we call an autistic-like phenotype. In other words, uh, six weeks later, these particular mice that were stressed uh, start behaving in ways that are similar to some of the aspects of autism, especially that they're super anxious. And uh, I would like to return to this if we have time either today or hopefully some other time. Maybe it becomes a vicious cycle, but is it possible also that metabolic issues or toxicity predispose one to the inability to handle stress? Uh, well, the metabolic part could very likely be true. Uh, the, the second part of your question, it will be a little harder for me to answer only because I don't have any uh, knowledge or evidence to that effect. But, for instance, when we call metabolic, metabolic, of course, relates to everything that our body does, the certain parts of our metabolism that allow someone to respond or not to respond you know, properly uh, to stress, including uh, the production of overproduction of corticotropin-releasing hormone, and at the same time, which is also a fascinating topic, while we know the molecules that trigger stress, such as CRH, we're not very much aware of molecules that can dampen stress. Um, if I can use kind of a silly example, having an internal Valium, if you wish. Uh, in fact, Valium and such drugs were discovered, you know, 15, 20 years ago because they had the ability to calm someone down. We know how they act in the body, but to this day, uh, scientists have not discovered an innate, a normal molecule that acts on those receptors like the drug, you know, Valium and the like. So it could well be that not only there are more stressors or more exacerbated response in autistic patients, but they might be lacking also an innate ability to basically regulate uh, undue stress. Okay. We'll that was a good one. When we come back from break. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Sia Harides, and just as a summary of the diagram that you gave us earlier for listeners, uh, so. Uh, there is a, a baby, they have a subclinical infection, the mast cells in the intestines are stimulated, uh, a, hypo, a hyperpermeable intestinal barrier uh, that is uh, too permeable, hyperpermeable intestinal barrier results, toxins enter the blood, the blood-brain barrier opens, uh, toxins get into the brain, this causes neuroinflammation, and then additional stressors such as corticotropin-releasing hormone uh, can stimulate mast cells, and then you get into a cyclical reaction. Is this a good summary of where a we are? A very good summary. Excuse me? It's a very good summary. Okay. Just wanted to make that um, easier for our listeners. So how does this work in with patients having many allergies or a family history of allergy? Right. That, that's what intrigued us about uh, two years ago. I was reading papers indicating that uh, many patients with autism report symptoms that are very similar to allergies, such as skin reactions. Uh, many of them have food intolerance. Yet when they would visit an allergist, the typical test would basically tell the patients and families, you're not allergic. And I think that's because the tests we have are looking for this degranulation, this explosive release for the mast cells, and not the selective release that we've been talking about. In fact, the there is a society called the Mastocytosis Society uh, in the United States that produced a video a few months back that is given free to all physicians, and it was supported uh, by a grant from the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and it is called Mast Cell Activation Symptomatology, specifically to highlight the fact that allergy is only one aspect of this symptomatology, and yet one may have more problems that are not typically allergic. And for better or worse, I was one of the four professors that was interviewed uh, and made this uh, video. Therefore, we knew from what patients have been telling us and of the publications out there that mast cells must be activated, but not necessarily in the typical allergic mode. In fact, an abstract was published recently, uh, not the full paper yet, by a very well-known group in Italy indicating that in over 200 autistic patients they studied, the only other symptoms that had a significant correlation with autism were, in fact, allergic symptoms. Because of that, I turned, in fact, to this society, the Mastocytosis Society, specifically to find out if there's any chance that their children may have more or higher risk of uh, developing autism because by definition, mastocytosis means that there are many more mast cells in many organs, including the intestine and including the brain, and that these are hyperactive. So we actually... Uh, the Mastocytosis Society sent a questionnaire out to its 400 members or so, and the replies we got were really astounding because they had a higher chance of having autism 
that was almost tenfold higher than what has been published for the general population, which is one in 150. This is the first time in any of the publications that I have seen that any condition except genetic conditions such as Rett syndrome or Fragile X syndrome uh, have uh, shown such high chance of having autism uh, with an otherwise, uh, you know, uh, unknown sort of medical problem. That, in addition to everything else we've been discussing, clearly points to the fact that at least in a subgroup of patients, activation of mast cells is very important, and that clearly mast cell activation early in life by all these infectious, psychological, environmental toxic triggers could contribute at least uh, to autism in the way you described it in your summary. Okay, so are there various triggers of mast cell activation that parents should or could watch out for? Well, clearly if someone has any symptoms of allergy, uh, especially in younger children, they should at least have them evaluated by someone who really understands um, what you know, mast cell activation means. In other words, one doesn't have, for instance, food allergy, uh, is a true allergy, meaning we measure something in the blood that is high. That is called IgE antibody. But in food intolerance, IgE antibody is not high. So if patients, especially early on children, have food intolerance, then they should, the parents clearly should be aware of that uh, and they should try to seek physicians who not only understand this but might be able to address it. How do you address it? If it is food intolerance, you try to avoid sequentially as many things as they might, for instance, um, uh, be causing the problem. In young infants, it might be um, uh, milk, it might be gluten, it might be a number of things. If they have other allergic symptoms, including real allergies such as asthma, etc., those should be addressed you know, very quickly uh, early on. And, of course, if they have mastocytosis, that should be addressed. What do we mean by addressed? Well, there are at least four classes of treatments or, or drugs that we can use. Sometimes just using an antihistamine, which only takes care of one of the 50 or so molecules that is released in the mast cells called histamine, may at least reduce the problems. Many times that's not enough. Then there are certain other drugs that we can use even in small children that can at least partially block the mast cells from being activated. And most recently, uh, we have shown that certain natural molecules called flavonoids that we do not make, we actually absorb from uh, nature, uh, have tremendous ability to block the mast cells. But there we have to be very careful because there are about 3,000 of these flavonoids. Some are good, some are bad. And one should not just run out and try to get sort of flavonoids in general. Uh, to give to children. Okay, so there are some natural uh, nutritional factors uh, called flavonoids. Some of them, you're saying that there's a distinction between the ones that would be helpful and not that could uh, provide a therapeutic uh, approach to this. Well, yes. In fact, uh, we published uh, a review in 2000 uh, discussing flavonoids in general and, and uh, uh, I dare say it was actually considered a publication classic because of the citation he has received, where we 
indicate which flavonoids uh, could be good and which could be bad for inflammation, not for autism. And then recently we published that two of them, one is called luteolin, the other is called quercetin, are particularly potent in blocking uh, mast cells. But the tricky part with even these two flavonoids are that if you sprinkle them in water, they float. They don't dissolve very well, which means that if you just take them in a powder form by just going to you know, some health food store and buying them, less than 5% will be absorbed from the intestine to get to the brain where you want to block uh, inflammation. Mm. However, when we and other colleagues used these flavonoids in animal models, if I can call them animal models of autism, or animal models of anxiety or of stress, we managed to block brain inflammation, but there we could give these flavonoids not by mouth, but through other means. Right now, with a small company um, from uh, Florida called Algonaut, um, we've been able to select three flavonoids that will basically help each other to allow better absorption uh, and higher chances of reaching uh, the brain. Uh, this formulation uh, is called NeuroProtect, for protecting basically neurons of the brain. And we hope that in the next two months uh, this will be available and we've applied to a number of um, funding sources from the National Institute of Health to Autism Speaks to other sources uh, for hopefully doing a clinical study and, and I'm very happy to indicate that the Child Psychopharmacology Unit at the Massachusetts General Hospital has agreed to actually do this study with us once we actually get funding. Well, where can listeners look for more information about mast cells or mastocytosis? Um, there are uh, uh, three ways of doing this. Uh, one would be a website that I actually have. It's a research website called, it's a kind of funny term, mustcellmaster.com. Okay, mustcellmaster.com. And, of course, they can just Google for the Mastocytosis Society, uh, and that has very useful information. And they can also go to algonaut.com. Well, Dr. Theoharides, I'd like to thank you for researching and sharing this intricate information that offers hope for practical directions for treatment. To our listeners, Dr. Thea Harides will be presenting at the Autism One 2009 conference in Chicago on Friday, May 22nd. Please visit www.autismone.org. Next week's show will be Dr. John and Betsy Hicks, and on April 14th, I'll be talking with Mary Romanis about autism and marriage, and then April 21st, I'll be speaking with Cindy Griffin and Linda Lanham of Houston Homeopathy. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, for questions about this program. Please email me at toranga at autismone.org. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 